Welcome to the Beautiful Step Podcast, where we run, stomp, tiptoe, and tango into the confusing, but beautiful world of togetherness. We are your hosts, Chris and Charity. Now, let's go make our together even, even better. Sometimes I think you look down on me because of bad behavior. What? Yeah, I feel like sometimes I'm like, why am I eating this? You know, why am I, why do I drink, you know, too much or too often or those kinds of things? Do you feel that? Like I'm, I'm like judging you sometimes? Uh, yeah, probably. I do feel that. Yeah, particularly about like eating something or like if you're going to have a piece of cheesecake or something like that, you look over at me and you're like, I know he's looking at me like he's totally judging me. (laughs) Yeah, I do have that feeling sometimes. It's so wonderful. Okay, so here's the thing is what's the difference between like a habit and an addiction, you know, because you're like, I can't stop doing this or maybe I should just like try to not do this. Right. I think everyone keeps using that word addiction and it cheap cheapens it a little bit i'm so addicted to this song or i'm so addicted to cheesecake or i'm so you know what i mean yeah there's is this colloquialism or like this vernacular surrounding addiction it's like wait time out because addiction is a little more serious than that right yeah we actually i can i give the definition of addiction yeah in like the psychology thing because i think in a relationship this is really helpful to be like oh no you're your husband or your partner just has a bad character issue or a bad habit. It's like, wait, okay, let's talk about actually addiction here. Yes. So we learned this on a podcast recently from the Knowledge Project. Yeah. He was interviewing Dr. Anna Lemke, who is the Stanford addiction specialist, and she's amazing. Go read her book, Dopamine Nation, like fantastic. But this podcast, she gives the definition, the continued compulsive use of any substance or behavior. Okay, time out. Continued compulsive use of any substance or behavior, any substance or behavior, despite harm to self or others. Okay, time out. Substance or behavior. Yes. You can be addicted to a behavior. Absolutely masturbation yeah a compulsive masturbation you know can become an addiction okay so unpack this idea of why listening to what you know her definition is i mean she's the stanford well this is actually the american psychology or psychiatry definition this isn't her definition that's from like that's the definition they all use okay gotcha gotcha okay so why is something addictive that's such a big question. Yes. And Can she, you answer that? Well, according to her, right, she has four things that kind of like are a part of, you know, it's, it's become an addiction when these things are out of whack. And so I think for this, as you read these four things, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, okay, let me not just apply this to myself, but when I'm watching you do something that I would consider sort of either compulsive or habitual or maybe addictive, I need to look at that. And I need to look at this definition and I also need to look at like, what are the criteria? So I know, you know, what I'm dealing with here. Yes. Yeah. And how I should handle you in our relationship. Right. Yeah. Go. Okay. Control. Like how often are you using the substance or behavior and is it out of control or not? Can you control it or do you feel like you can't really control it? Gotcha. Control. Cravings. Do you have 
cravings for this substance or behavior. Okay. Can when you think about it, are you immediately like, I am going to do whatever it takes to get that? Because sometimes a craving shows up across your frontal lobe. It just happens. You'll be sitting there and it's like, boom, man, it's a great time for a cigarette. Yeah. Okay, yeah. go. Craving. But not, you know, people that are dealing with true addiction, right? The cravings are coming often. Right. And, you know, they have triggers and that kind they of stuff, right? Compulsion. Can't stop yourself. Like, it is compulsive. You feel the need. You're thinking about it all the time. It's kind of, you're obsessing. Um, and then the last one is consequences. If the, you are doing, continuing the behavior despite negative consequences, the behavior of substance, despite negative consequences, you're kind of abandoning those things. So the four are control, cravings, compulsion, and consequences. And I would say, okay, yeah, that's so helpful. I think that's a really helpful, like rudimentary criteria, yeah. right? And I think to the degree that those things are online or happening in your brain and in your sociobiological, physical world, um, to the degree that those things are happening is to the degree that you should take seriously, maybe you're nursing an addiction here. Right. She was saying like, you know, you could have a behavior that's compulsive in nature or you might not feel like you can control it at the time. The thing I loved about what she did that was a real game changer for me when listening to her was I think I've always viewed addiction deep down. If I'm honest, I've always view, viewed addiction as a character flaw. It's a character flaw. I mean, we came up in a world that would teach you like if you could change your attitude or if you could change your moral uh, uh, disposition toward this thing, like see this as bad and you'll be able to quit or feel bad enough about yourself and you'll be able to quit or feel good enough about your spirituality and it'll set you free, right? Those are character comments. Well, I, I, I remember specifically saying things like, well, how can it be a disease if you could just, you know, when people talk about addiction as a disease, how can it be a disease? If I never drank, I'm not going to become an alcoholic. I am choosing that behavior that's then causing an addiction. Or if I never used heroin, I'm not going to become addicted to heroin. Right. So you're choosing this behavior. But then I have to go like, there are lots of things where behavior affects something becoming a disease. How many things do we know cause cancer? And we continue in the behavior and then they actually end up in a full-on disease that's out of our control. Right, right. And so, and, and look at diabetes, right? Yes. You go, oh man, you really shouldn't have eaten all that sugar for all those years and gained all that weight. But what the reality is, is you have an actual physical ailment. It is flipped the trigger it's it's flipped the switch to now become an actual on its own standalone disease and i know this right. because like for me i have high blood pressure and high cholesterol some of that's genetic but honestly if i had been more careful about weight gain and eating and all that kind of stuff i wouldn't be dealing with those diseases right and so the the thing that i think that is very illuminating and that i maybe just didn't cognitively totally process was this idea that mental turns physical, turns biological reality. Yes. You can handicap yourself physically 
by what you're doing in your mind, mm-hmm. right? And I, and the biggest, I think the biggest way I learned this was I had a grand mal seizure. You did. 20 minutes long of me waking up and you like choking. And if you weren't there, I would have swallowed my tongue and been dead maybe. I don't know. You were hauled out on a stretcher. Yeah. Like full on. And here's what, and here's what happened was, and this is a, a completely crude explanation of what happened, but this is what I understood my neurologist to tell me was, look, you have a really stressful life. And what's going on is you have a frontal lobe where that's where the lights turn on and like you're cognitive and like you have, you know, all the social ability and all this stuff. And he was saying what you're doing, and it could have been with diet and lack of exercise. You were and drinking tons of those energy, energy drinks. drinks and stuff. And so what he was saying is what happened to your brain, this is very crude, but what happened to your brain with all of that stress and lack of sleep and all these kinds of things, you know, taking on the weight of the world and trying to save everybody all the time is your brain. What it's doing is it's creating these pathways, these really bright, hot wire pathways, you know, to the front lobe. And what happened was, is, is basically you just be a path from wherever in your brain to the frontal lobe. So bright that, it was like one more little bit of stress and boom, lights are out, right? Like you just, it's just too much, yeah. like way too much frontal lobe activity. And so what he did is he put me on a neuro blocker, right? And so I took these, you know, it's a, it's an antipsychotic or something. It was very anti-seizure meds. Yeah. Yeah. Anti-se- and so what it did was it, it, and this is the way I understand it is it spread out those neural pathways and it shut down some of those neural pathways and it dimmed those neural pathways to my frontal lobe so that it could give my brain a chance to physically heal. Like I actually had to physically heal my brain because I had physically changed the anatomy, you know, of yeah. my brain, the physiology of my brain. And so his goal was to go, look, why don't we put you on these neural blockers for between three to five years? I believe that those paths will grow over. Your brain's going to start to function in a different way. And you will actually be able to get off of these neuroblockers and maybe, um, you know, continue to have or go back into a stressful life. But you can't live this life right now. Um, It's impossible, physically impossible for you to live this life without a neuroblocker and not have a seizure. Yes, you were having mini seizures all the time up to this point, and we just didn't know, but it had become a full on, you had become diagnosed as epileptic and everything else because your brain had created an actual like right. biological reaction. And so I think that one of the coolest things about listening to this doctor talk on this podcast, tell me her name, Anna Lemke, is the physiology behind dopamine and addiction. Ah, uh, it Talk was so it. it was so fascinating. So she, you know, she's likening pain and pleasure. Oh. Cut here. Cut back there. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I already did talk about it. Okay. So. So yeah, she. This was a mind-blowing thing to me. She actually explained to me the first time I really have gotten it 
why we do the things we do when it comes to addiction and how we form addictions. And the thing that she unpacked for me was I used to call BS on the whole, like alcoholism is a disease, a physical disease until I heard her talk about it. Yes. So she likens pain and pleasure, right? Like dopamine is the, is the pleasure center of the brain. It's the thing that tells us, gives us rewards. And we, she's saying that we process pain and pleasure in the very same part of the brain. Right. And when we experience pleasure, we get a hit of dopamine. Everybody knows this, right? We get a hit of dopamine and we're like, that's awesome. We want to recreate this. What I didn't understand is that because your brain is always trying to get to homeostasis, it's always trying to get to an equilibrium, which just means homeostasis means it's at a status quo. It's always balanced. Your body is always trying to balance itself. That with every hit of pleasure, you have to have a hit of pain. Mm. Your body will naturally force you to have a hit of pain to bring equilibrium. It won't let you sit there in pleasure forever. And we all know this, like you can't keep riding the pleasure thing forever. It's boring after a while. Well, and there's consequences to only pleasure, right? And just like there's consequences to only pain. So she did this cool little analogy. She was like, basically, listen, every time you have pleasure and you have a dopamine hit, you have a little gremlin that gets up on top of that little teeter-totter and forces the thing up to where you're feeling awesome. You have pleasure. But then all of a sudden, it creates an instant dopamine negative hole. Mm. That, it's a bad, a, a deficit. A, Let's, deficit. a deficit. deficit of dopamine. A dopamine deficit where it creates it because it knows it needs to fill that in order to bring you back to equilibrium. Which is why she was saying like people that even let's say they're inter like they've had an addiction or they're in the middle of addiction. Let's say it's a substance. They see somebody with a pot pipe and they have been addicted or whatever. And immediately, even before they have taken a hit, they get that instant like anticipation. Like it's a little bit of a dopamine hit, like, Oh, the, the excitement, the anticipation of it. But then what happens is the body immediately sends out a dopamine deficit. And that is what causes you to go like, that's what causes cravings. You say, oh, I, I, now I'm excited about that. And now I feel like the, the need for that and I don't have it. So now I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that. It's that pain that's like going to get you to do something. So meanwhile, you would judge a person by, and go like, dude, you, that's bad character. Like you need to not decide that you want that where it's like, wait, no, this is a physiological thing that's happening chemically in your body because you have, I guess in so many ways you have sort of repositioned all of your dopamine, your pain, pleasure, dopamine hits to this, to this degree, right? Yes. It happens to everyone. Every single person has that same exact reaction. We all have the same dopamine, uh, like receptors in the sense that like every time we experience pleasure, our body is going to send out a need for pain. And just to bring us back to that, we all get that where it goes to addiction is because every time we keep doing it, if we keep giving ourselves a reward and we're building up that reward cycle or we take more and more of the substance or more and more of the behavior and we've built up a tolerance and we require more and more of it, then for the more and more we need of that pleasure, the deeper and deeper that dopamine deficit gets to where it's like the pain has to get that much worse, which is why she's saying like when you get to full on full blown addiction, 
It takes so much when you're having to reintroduce that substance, it takes so much just to get you to feel normal because the pain has gone so deep that you're feeling like, I just need to feel okay. I need, my skin needs to stop crawling. It's not, I'm not even going to get pleasure anymore. I'm not even going to get like that feeling of high. I'm just going to get to where I, my skin is not crawling. That's so insane. And the one, I think the, the, one of the big things that I learned through her teaching was this idea of you have physical activity that gives you dopamine hits. So you have like a young person who is masturbating every day to a certain type of porn compulsively and he comes in or they come in completely depressed and really anxious and their life is just like, I can't, you know, uh." and what her comment is, is, you really need to reset your dopamine uh, receptors. Like you have so overly taxed and so overly used your dopamine receptors to having this type of fun, I guess, that the rest of your life is pretty anxious. Like you're in a low, like all the time until you masturbate again. And then you get this dopamine hit. And then it's like, afterwards you just kind of fall back into all of this anxiety and all of this overwhelm and and her diagnosis which was fascinating is stop the behavior for 30 days whatever the whether it's the addictive behavior the addictive substance if you can give yourself 30 days it'll 80 percent of the time cure any negative depression anxiety and all those other things that you're feeling in every other area of your life it will 30 days will give your brain enough time to start to reset that dopamine receptor and get you back to okay i don't need this intense of an experience to get to homeostasis again and that was the big aha moment for me because you'll be in a relationship right And you'll be looking at the person and you'll be like, man, this guy or this woman masturbates every single day. Am I not good enough? And it's kind of like, well, wait, time out. What if they're dealing with some serious chemical imbalance right now? Some real dopamine lows and highs. And they've developed to the point of a compulsion that has turned into an addiction. Yes. And it's like, wait, what if you just stopped over moralizing it, right? And went and said, hey, why don't we start asking some questions and maybe get some help here? It's the same thing for a certain type of binge eating, right? Like overeating. It's the same thing for using substances. You know, if you're, if you're out of control with alcohol use or any sort of substance or intoxicant, right? Right. That produces that immediate hit. And she was making the point that something, it becomes more and more addictive. It's more, you know, on the scale of things that are able to be addicted to, The faster it gives you dopamine and the stronger the dopamine, the more effective it is at actually building addictive pathways. Cocaine, baby. (laughs) Bam. Boom. Yeah. And so we started thinking about this and how important that is and why sometimes when you're trying to stop a behavior that you're really feeling is like addictive, like overeating or something like that, oftentimes diets will build in like a cheat day, which has never worked for me. Never worked for me. It'll be like, well, on Friday, I get a cheat day. Well, here's why that doesn't work for me is because I know that with the pleasure of something, which I'm anticipating, and now I have this craving, which is the pain part of it. And my body is wanting to bring that pain part of it. I 
cannot think of Friday as a cheat day as something that's going to alleviate that pain because it is not the reward cycle isn't happening fast enough for me to feel like I'm going to be, that pain is going to be alleviated and me to actually deal with it. So when you're building in ways or triggers to get yourself out of that pain point, they can't be something really far off that you're like, well, in two months, I'm going to get to go on vacation. And therefore there has to be something that's built in right now where that's strong enough to offset that pain. That is so important. So here's the way that I've dealt with this. Like I have, I've always, and will forever have, um, a tension between me and what I would call nicotine. What you would call it as if it's called something else. (laughs) That's Chris's own term for nicotine. (laughs) My own term for nicotine. Well, because nicotine, I'm pretty much cool with any form. Like I can chew and gut it, right? Like I don't have to spit and I can. So gross. I can smoke an entire cigar and inhale half of it and like chew on it, you know, like, and you know, vape. Oh, you have a vape. Let me, let me see that thing. Right. (laughs) Like get it off, you know, pour it on me. Right. So I have, I have this tension between nicotine and, um, for me, I feel like as it is now, it's in a space in my mind that is controllable. Like I don't feel physically addicted to it. I but I may or may not be anyway. I would agree with that. I mean, you, you, it seems like you can control it in the sense like you'll go a long time without using it. And then you don't, even when you start to smoke a cigar, it's not every day, all day or anything like that. Yeah. I don't smoke every hour. I mean, it, you know, last night we were with some people and they were smoking a cigar and the, you know, and, and they handed it to me. I, I had a couple of drags off it and then it kind of kept coming around and I was like, you know, what? I, I'm, I'm over it. So I, there is this part of me that definitely understands the addictive qualities of nicotine. Right. Sure. And there have been times in my life where I'm like, I really, I can't stop doing this. Like I can't, I need a chew right now, or I need to go out and smoke a black and mild right now. Like it's a thing I need to do. And I'm not, honestly, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to like, I mean, there are, there have been theologians, preachers, um, mathematicians, um, who have used nicotine to calm themselves down and to, actually get sort of some enlightened thought. And and so I'm not, honestly, there are good qualities to nicotine. Well, that would be said of anything that can become an addiction. Like (laughs) people use food to calm down. People use cocaine to speed up. Like, I mean, (laughs) it works well for some people in all situations, but it it is addictive. That's very Joe Rogan of us right (laughs) now. But I would say that I'm not trying to say that all nicotine use is bad. Can I get to the point, please? Yes. So here's what I'm getting at is with an addiction, I'm relating it to myself and to nicotine. For me, the only way that I can even, when I'm in that space, the only way I can even get any sort of margin to get to a point where I can reset my dopamine uh, receptors is I have to get on a bike. And I have to get on a bike, a bicycle, a road bike in my Lycra, right? And I have to do it as it comes on, like if I'm feeling like, man, I really, I could really need a chew right now. Or I really need a, a, a black and mild or something like I have to go. That is my call to get on my bike and outrun this thing. I used to call it like outrunning it. And I didn't know really why 
that was the case until I heard this podcast. And so tell me, remind me of what she says. It's bio, what is it again? So Dr. Lemke says it's biopsychosocial. So a physical addiction is not just physical, it's biological. Which is the physical part of it. Psycho, which is the mental part of it. And then it's social. Like the disease of addiction is biopsychosocial. So here's the, here's the reason why the bicycle worked for me to outrun nicotine is because biologically I needed like a physical um, activity to match or trump a physical craving, right? Yes. The pain. The you pain. needed the pleasure to offset the pain. Right. And the psychological part of it is I couldn't just sit still. I needed something to process, yeah. right? And then what's really strange is I started to realize that there is a huge social aspect for me as well. Because if I am a cyclist, what does a cyclist have anything to do with a cigar? Like you can't smoke and be a good cyclist. Like if you're a cyclist socially, like you're super healthy, right? And you're not going to like use nicotine or any of these kinds of things. Like you're cyclists and cigar smokers are not in the same place at the same time ever anywhere. So it was so interesting as I was rehearsing and wondering like, why was it so effective for me to get on my bike in my Lycra and go do this thing is because it was checking, ticking off all the boxes. Yes. And it was immediate. Like it follows that pattern of like, you have to find something in the reward circuit to actually create an instant dopamine, something to offset the pain. And it has to be strong enough to relieve the pressure. It has to be strong enough to bring you to that equilibrium or as close to it as you can get. Right. And for me, I, I know that some people would be like, you know, if there's like, if they're dealing with an alcohol addiction, right? They're like, okay, well, the biological part of it is, you know, I'm going to go for a walk. And the psychological part of it is I'm going to practice mindfulness maybe, you know, while I'm walking or listen to a podcast or something like that. But the social part of it is something that I think is a real trigger for many people. And I used to use this term, you know, if you, if you sit in a barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. That's just the way yeah. that it works. And if an alcoholic is going to sit in a bar long enough, you're going to, you know, have a drink. Or if you hang around these type of people long enough, it's going to happen. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's really going to happen. Well, I love the point she brought up that, because addiction is biopsychosocial, not only are we doing psychological things to t tell ourselves that we're not an addiction, like to make lots of excuses to ourselves, but then she said, because there's a social element, we will naturally, our body, I mean, these are things that are happening way deep down subconscious. We will naturally seek out people who are using even more than we are or the same level we are so that we feel like we are not out of control right? because like, then we're comparing. Right. And so you'll, you'll naturally kind of seek out those people. That's and so if you funny. remove yourselves from those social settings, you'll realize like, wait, I'm, I'm out of whack here. Everybody else is like stopping at two glasses of wine. And I, for some reason, snuck in the back and drank two bottles. Like then it, it brings a context to it that we sometimes are not able to see on our own. Yeah. I think that's so interesting because you can go into a, a different social setting, like you said, and it's like, you know, wow, these people are 
Amish or something like that. And then all of a sudden you're like putting on your little Amish black vest. And you know what I mean? It, it Again, it's, you know, show me your friends. I'll show you your future type idea. But the, the social aspect of it was um, such a, an important part for me when I was cycling. It was a part that I didn't quite cognitively understand why it was working until I listened to, look, if you don't deal with an addiction in a bio psycho social way you probably won't be successful yes and this is what i love about this whole thing is it to me it neutralized the judgment of addiction and and, and, in relationship that is so key i mean if if you are contemptuous in your relationship in any way what does Gottman say? It's like a 90% chance that you aren't making it. Yes. And so this is a huge tool. Yeah. This is a, huge, a great point. huge tool for us to be able to say, look, what you're going to need to do is if you see a behavior and you're sitting there thinking, man, it's just a really bad habit or it's her character flaw or something like that. What if you were to start to look at that thing? Like there's a physiological thing going on there. There's a, there's a, an actual chemical thing that's happening that is could be at the point of disease, could be at the point of, no, wait, you're not able to make decisions right now because your brain and the chemicals in your brain, it's like lights are out. No one's home. Like when I had that grand mal seizure, I realized, whoa, your brain is going to do whatever it wants and it'll make you crazy. It'll make you, I couldn't make a decision while I was in a seizure. And that's what I'm saying. Like if your brain and the chemicals in your brain are doing some really funky stuff, or, you know, if that's happening in your partner, you really need to exercise some empathy and start asking some questions. And so she prescribes, the first thing she was saying she prescribes is on somebody who's not addicted to a substance that could kill you without safety talks like alcohol or opioids. Um, then she said, you know, she prescribes 30 days complete removal of the substance. And as we mentioned before, she said most people who come into her clinic are also, they come in because they're complaining of anxiety and depression and they're, they're considering themselves clinically depressed or anxious and have some sort of disorder. And she said, you know, almost all of the time we'll uncover some sort of addictive behavior that's occurring. And if we prescribe the removal of that behavior for 30 days, 80% of the time, which is consistent across all studies for the last decade, a couple of decades now, is that 80% of the time, the symptoms of anxiety and depression will go away because it will take away, it'll fill back up that that dopamine deficit and you won't be feeling like you're trying to force yourself to offset that all the time. That's so key. I love that you brought that up because most of the time you're going to go into therapy and they're going to go, okay, well, we need to get in touch with your inner child. We need to get in touch with all the trauma that you've experienced. We need to do all of this really hard work, you know, internally and, and on your inner person. And then at that point the you know, you're scot-free and the addiction is going to go away. And to her point, she says, that's not that it's not that, you know, traumatized care is not important trauma-informed care trauma-informed yeah. care is not important it's just that you're never going to beat an addiction by just talking to your inner child there are physical things that you have to do in order to beat this addiction so we can maybe deal with all of that stuff when you're thinking clearly yes. you're not even able to process <laughs> or think clearly and so yeah. i guess that's the part of this empathetic approach that i would love to promote but in relationship it's like look you're not even able to think clearly about your inner child right now because your dopamine is so screwed up and you're making these decisions 
that are not rational. Yeah. It's, so let's get you like healed up first physically. And then we can actually start to talk a little bit more about, you know, let's unpack some of this. Other right. Stuff. And to make it clear, she's not saying 30 days is the key. She's just saying that's the starting point. And the other thing she prescribed that I really love that has to do with relationship and the, the psychosocial part of the disease is that we have to, she prescribes brutal honesty. Like I think she called it radical honesty. And I was like, this is so freaking brilliant because she said that what happens with addiction naturally is because your brain is constantly trying to justify its behavior. You start lying and you start lying in not just the area related to that thing, but you start lying in most areas and you kind of create the double life, which is one of the things that's an indication that something has gone from just a habit to an addiction. What she was saying is there is a, a red flag or, yeah. you know, like if this is happening, there's probably an underlying addiction. Like if you're lying about whether you're at Century 21 or Remax, there's no reason why, you you know, like it's just the craziest little white lies, like you said, because you're just not thinking clearly. Yeah, I just really love this. I thought that tools were really helpful in the sense that like now I can look at my own life and have so much empathy and empathy for other people in my life to say like, yes, nothing. What I want to point out is nothing in this removes the personal responsibility. We all still can actually cure our disease. I mean, mind blown, right? Like there are medicines that help get you to that more of an equilibrium so that you can deal with it. There's those kind of things, but the reality is there still has to be personal responsibility for us all to decide to make the, the shift. Right. And that's good. But then there's this element that I didn't give credence to before that I need to give credence to fully now is that things do become, they do go from psycho to like a psychosocial thing mm-hmm. or just a habit to an actual biological event that right. creates its own disease. And there are diseases, addictive diseases that if you did try to quit cold turkey, you would die. So there is that point of, yes, there is personal responsibility and all that kind of stuff, but there's also on the side of like, man, it's gone so physical that you could actually die from these withdrawals. Yeah. And so I, I, I love this idea of we are in full control. We are, we have the power to actually heal ourselves, but we do have to deal like that's, you have to deal with it physically. I believe first. And that was her, that was her point too, is like, it, you have to deal with it in all, all three areas, psycho, you know, biopsychosocial, you have to deal with it in all areas, but sometimes you can't deal with the psycho or the social without dealing with the biology of it. So if something has gotten to that point where it's biologically, it's an addiction, you really do have to treat that like its own thing to be able to get to the next place. Right. And so I hear myself, like even this morning, I heard myself tell myself Maybe I won't eat a donut this morning because I'm going to do a little bit of work on my dopamine receptors. I love it. Isn't that helpful? I'm like, no, what if I resisted that and, you know, I refreshed my dopamine a little. Yeah. And she was making the point that like we're in this crazy period of time where we're getting so much dopamine overload because every like, every tweet, every, everything is creating these dopamines and we're getting this instant gratification of things and we have access to all these, you know, luxurious goods. And 
we we are a society that has access to this and yet we don't really have the tools to understand that with every pleasure we're creating a deficit and for me that's the most helpful tool i want to recognize like okay charity when you do eat this donut you're going to create a deficit which then you're going to have to fill so do you want to create the deficit or would you like to like leave yourself at homeostasis and not cause yourself to go into that craving state i love that yeah leave yourself in homeostasis right now and then honestly like if i were to give myself a little bit of um, self-control and i start to kind of um you know deny some things what i am doing is like i'm prepaying i love it yes i'm preloading right for that donut or whatever that thing is is going to be spectacular compared to if i just kind of keep on eating the donut and being like oh why doesn't this donut taste so good i must need three more you know yeah it's just education and it's knowledge is power knowledge is power like understanding this about ourselves and about each other is so helpful to me and make taking it out of the judgment zone Mm -hmm. and just making it like hey this is a biopsychosocial thing let's treat it that way and everybody has this reality to deal with yes we have brains we have chemicals going on in there we have neuro pathways every single person has the same reality and so why wouldn't I extend some of that same understanding to someone who I'm looking at it, you know, in partnership with and being like, why can't you stop this habit? Yeah. And it's like, well, maybe there's a reality there that they're dealing with some, you know, some real lows that they're trying to fix. Yeah. yeah. And the longer you're in something, the more gremlins are on each side of the scale, she said. And mm-hmm. then what she, she had the other thing she brought up is just, that it remembers those gremlins remember and so if you introduce that thing even after a long time it is a relapsing type of disease because your brain will go immediately to like what made you feel better and all of that other kind of stuff you'll immediately go there so it's just helpful to think about it and know about it and have some grace for each other yeah good job ed i love this you too all right Babe, wait! <laughs> How do we end this? By saying thank you. Okay, you guys are awesome. Thank you. There's nothing more encouraging than you hitting that like button and commenting. And don't forget to subscribe. And I know there's more. You have a list. Might as well go down the list. Right. Okay, watch the video of this podcast on our Beautiful Step YouTube channel or on our website where you can actually download transcripts and show notes of the episode. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If today's episode made your together even better, tell someone. Okay, now. Right now. Today. Okay. You can take one step. It's just one step. Toward the beautiful relationship you want in your life. You got this.